changes in nature showing evidence for circadian rhythms in the absence of transcription and at the time that was considered very surprising because all of the paradigms in eukaryotic systems at the time had revolved around cycles of clock gene expression and of course if there is a circadian rhythm in a red blood cell which is naturally a nucleus it cannot be sustained by a transcriptional cycle and so subsequent to that when the period gene is active period mrna is made the mRNA is transported to the cell's cytoplasm and serves as a template for the production of pair protein. The pair protein accumulates in the cell's nucleus, where the period gene activity is blocked. This gives rise to the inhibitory feedback mechanism that underlies a circadian rhythm. That's from the press release for the 2017 Nobel Prize awarded to Hall, Rosbach and Young for describing the transcriptional clockwork that keeps organismal time. But can a cell with no nucleus have a clock? Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. On this episode, we speak with John O'Neill of the MRC's Laboratory of Molecular Biology and his postdoc, Andrew Beale, authors of a preprint reviewed through Review Commons and ultimately published in the EMBO Journal as Mechanisms and Physiological Function of Daily Hemoglobin Oxidation Rhythms in Red Blood Cells. It's the story of a weird band on a Western blot, pandemic disruptions, and the importance of tone in peer review. For John O'Neill, it's a story that began over a decade ago. In about 2011, we published uh, a couple of papers in Nature showing evidence for circadian rhythms in the absence of transcription. And at the time, that was considered very surprising because all of the paradigms in eukaryotic systems at the time had revolved around cycles of clock gene expression. And of course, if there is a circadian rhythm in a red blood cell, which is naturally a nucleus, it cannot be sustained by a transcriptional cycle. And so uh, subsequent to that, it was reproduced, the, the central observation was reproduced in a couple of uh, different labs, which is always uh, very heartening. And um, in our lab, we um, kind of pursued it a bit. So Andrew published a paper in um, 2019 showing that these rhythms in red blood cells are susceptible to inhibition by the same um, uh, drugs that affect circadian rhythms in cells with nuclei. And so it's kind of pushing us towards, um, towards mechanism. But um, Back in about 2012, when originally we were just doing Western blots um, for a, a post-translational oxidative modification, um, that was how we originally identified the oscillation in red cells under constant conditions, um, ex vivo. So back then, uh, my other collaborator, Michael Hastings, um, had been kind of nagging me saying, well, we really need to be able to see whether rhythms in red blood cells are affected by clock gene mutations. Because as I say, the, the other paradigm, the very successful paradigm that was first proposed in the 1990s was that these rhythms in the expression of clock genes are the thing that drives all circadian rhythms. And so Mick, um, he has a, um, a lab that is really focused around mouse genetics and looking at the 
electrophysiology and molecular rhythms in a tiny part of the hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. I realize I'm on, a, on an extended tangent here. So anyway, Mick has got these um, mouse mutants and both at the, the level of the whole mouse and uh, the level of cultured cells from those mice. Um, he had uh, the tau mutation and they have a, a shorter circadian period when you put the mouse into constant conditions or, or the cell is sitting there in a, in a dish if it's a fibroblast. And then the after hours mutation and those cells have a longer period as do the mice. And the way in which both of those mutations are understood to work is by acting on the proteins encoded by those same clock genes. So the tau mutation is thought to act by changing the activity of the period proteins and the after hours mutation is thought to change the stability of the cryptochrome proteins. And yet we had already shown and other people had shown that there are no cryptochrome or um, uh, uh, or period proteins in the red blood cells. But there remains the exciting possibility that the environment in which the uh, red cell developed may have affected the timing mechanism subsequently. And so Mick, his uh, experiment, the, the thing that he kept pressing to do, and um, God bless him, it eventually happened, um, was that we take red blood cells from these three different mouse lines and do exactly the same experiments that we've done in human cells and ask whether we observe any difference in these post-translational oxidative modifications of the peroxyredoxin proteins. And so um, that was a very long way of, uh, of explaining why we started doing the experiments and basically we didn't see any difference. Now in the process of doing those experiments we found another band and um, it was not at the molecular weight that we we're expecting and it was quite surprising. And then when I looked back through some of our older blots from human red blood cells, actually the same band was was there, um, but it was just very faint compared to the uh, uh, signal, the, the specific signal on the immunoblot. And so then um, we really, um, and this was when I was working with ACREDI at the Institute of Metabolic Science at the University of Cambridge in about 2012, um, we started trying to work out exactly where this um, signal might be coming from, because the striking thing is that it had an incredibly high amplitude circadian rhythm, much higher than anything that we'd observed in red blood cells before. So it was really going from a very strong signal to a very weak signal and then back up again, then back down again over the course of every 24 hour cycle. And so then I spent about um, 12 months doing um, a lot of biochemistry experiments. And it took me a surprisingly long time to, to work out that um, this non-specific band actually didn't involve any antibodies binding. It wasn't to do with the primary recognizing a protein at a different molecular weight, because if you took the red cell lysate and just transferred it straight onto nitrocellulose and added the ECL reagent, you saw exactly the same thing. Um, and this was astonishing to us, right? Because you're doing a Western blot, you're saying this beautiful circadian rhythm in a time course from red blood cells, and there's no antibody. You've not added any horseradish peroxidase. This was completely insane. And I must admit that, um, you know, I became, uh, I set up my own lab in about 2013, and I, I was kind of so almost embarrassed about this result in that we couldn't really explain it, even though it was so striking that, um, with the kind of 
workload that comes up with setting up a, a lab from scratch. I, I, I've got to say that the observations really just sat in the desk drawer for basically the next eight years. And um, we kept going back to it because Mick was obviously very keen to publish the primary observation, but I was fairly sure that this um, rhythm in peroxidase activity that was intrinsic to the mouse red blood cell and also human red blood cell was telling us something really important and we just immediately could not, couldn't immediately work out what it was. Um, I'm curious about one other aspect, which is when you published this, you, you published another paper uh, with, a, with a similar uh, point in terms of, of non-transcriptional, uh, non-transcriptional translation or uh, loop regulation. Uh, but you, it's on algae. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, this is, you know, really due to the, to the vagaries of one's lifestyle as a scientist. So, um, so my PhD was um, really in circadian neurobiology focused, um, working with Mick Hastings, in fact, focused on cyclic AMP signaling in the SCN. And um, for reasons that we maybe don't need to go into, the subsequent work that I was hoping to do with Mixed Lab um, did not go on as long as we had both thought it would do. Basically, the funding came to an end and I had to find a job at very short notice. <laughs> and so I, I contacted Andrew Miller, who um, at the time was running a systems biology um, department up in Edinburgh. And Andrew is a fantastic scientist. Um, he's um, subsequently gone on to achieve many fantastic things, both within and outside science. He's now training as a tree surgeon, um, as he tells me. But uh, at the time, he was running this systems biology department, and they'd um, just started to work with this um, uh, pico-eukaryotic algae, Ostracoccus tori. And so I got in touch with Andrew and uh, asked whether you know he had any jobs going. And uh, I was very fortunate that... Um, they were just advertising for uh, um, a postdoc in this uh, new department. And so I joined Andrew's lab and um, had the opportunity to be the first person um, in the UK, at least, using Ostracoccus tori as a, as a model organism. Um, I've got to say, though, that I brought with me the hypotheses that I'd pursued during my PhD on the potential relevance of post-transcriptional and post-translational regulation of circadian rhythms. And so whenever it was possible, I um, pursued some of those ideas in Ostreococcus and we found what really turned out to be quite good evidence for a circadian rhythm in the absence of um, changes in transcription. Um, and that really was inspired by all of the amazing work that had been done in the early noughties in cyanobacteria, where the circadian rhythm can be reconstituted in solution from just three proteins and a bit of ATP. Um, and so that had already set the precedent for the um, paradigm, really, that you can sustain a circadian rhythm post-translationally. And so I guess working with Andrew Miller, we were testing whether this could also be true in a eukaryotic system. Michael Hastings, known to Dr. O'Neill as Mick, is a co-author of the Review Commons preprint and the Embo Journal paper. In an odd plot twist, Dr. Hastings' research career began in marine biology, and he became interested in biological clocks while studying tidal cycles in crustaceans. 
Dr. Hastings' lab at the LMB studies the molecular neurobiology of the circadian clock. Postdoc Andrew Beale is the study's first author. We asked him what drove him to join the project. That's a good question. So, I mean, my actual involvement in the paper was probably thanks to lockdown because the lab closed down and we had plenty of time to wrap up observations that perhaps had been lingering in the lab for a while. Um, but why I suppose I came onto the project is because before John's lab, I was working with Fatima Labid at the University of Surrey on red blood cell circadian rhythms. And so my interest is slightly kind of from a different direction to John, but we've come to this same same field of non-transcriptional, non-translational rhythms in, in red blood cells. And in Surrey, we kind of looked at membrane uh, electrophysiology. And so when John had this observation that, uh, you know, we've got some, some other um, oscillations happening in red blood cells, I thought, right, this sounds interesting. I can, I can take this on. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really thanks to having some spare time with no lab work going on that we could delve into those observations, figure out the kind of uh, narrative and what's going on and, and look at those references that point us towards, you know, why this might be important for red blood cell physiology. So, yeah. It's a lockdown project, really. So, I mean, mysterious bands on, on Western blots have a checkered record of uh, sometimes just being artifacts and sometimes uh, uh, being actual, reflecting actual biology. So, this for either of you, uh, when did you become convinced that you were looking at something biologically significant? Well, in a sense, it, it actually is an artifact. Um, the, the point is that the artifact itself has a circadian rhythm, and so that is the... The thing that is of interest to us. But what we worked out is that, um, so the fact that you're seeing uh, uh, an intrinsic peroxidase activity on nitrocellulose means that there must be a heme group there. And we worked out it must be a heme group because it follows all of the same chemistry of, um, of heme-mediated um, uh, um, chemiluminescence reactions. Because you know how um, HRP works. Basically, you're just catalyzing the oxidation of luminol. So you've basically got a bit of peroxide, you've got hydrogen peroxide, you've got a bit of luminol, and the heme group is basically just catalyzing that oxidation reaction. And it turns out that any heme group can, can do that. And so by incubating the membrane with azide, for example, which inactivates heme and, and various other kind of mass spec and um, chemical treatments of the red cells, both before and after lysis, we were able to work out that it's definitely hemoglobin and it's definitely forming a covalent linkage to the heme moiety, which doesn't occur in, you know, the, the natural state. And so what we worked out is that really this is a, a covalent linkage, probably a Michael addition, um, so from a, a nearby thiol group, um, onto one of the double bonds in the porphyrin ring. So forming a, convalent, a covalent linkage during lysis. Um, uh, and so the thing that's oscillating is the important uh, question. So we're, we're getting this artifactual linkage between the hemoglobin protein and the hemoity that's able to subsequently catalyze the ECL reaction. But the thing is that it had a circadian rhythm to it. And so what could that 
be occurring due to. And what we then worked out was that it was the redox state of heme in hemoglobin at the point of lysis that determines the efficiency of that, um, the formation of that covalent linkage. And so then what that implied is that there must be a cell intrinsic change in the redox state of hemoglobin, so of, of the heme in the hemoglobin protein. And we'd already found circumstantial evidence in our uh, 2011 paper that that was, that that was true. But this suggested it very, very much more strongly. And what was particularly neat is that if we treated cells with nitrite, and so you know this is something that you get in bacon and basically lots of cured pig meat. It's the thing that makes bacon uh, red. If you pretreat the red cells with nitrites that converts all of the hemoglobin into methemoglobin, you no longer get any of this um, uh, uh, covalent linkage forming. It's no longer able to um, catalyze the ECL reaction. And so that indicated very strongly that the thing that was changing was the proportion of met hemoglobin. So that's where the iron in heme is in the ferric state, Fe, Fe3. And so the proportion of met hemoglobin in the red cell as a whole seemed to be the thing that was oscillating as a function of um, uh, changes in or circadian regulation of redox biochemistry. And so that was why we were able to observe these um, changes over the circadian, over several circadian cycles in isolated mouse and human red blood cells. And so then this kind of suggested that, hey, maybe this could be also occurring in vivo because it's all very well showing that there is a circadian rhythm in red blood cells, but we and nobody else have managed to work out what it is that actually determines timekeeping. We still don't have a coherent answer for that. And the other thing that we don't have a coherent answer for or, or at the time is what is the physiological function of um, circadian rhythms in red blood cells. But of course, hemoglobin is a very important, the important gas carrying molecule in, uh, in humans. And so it seems like a, a sensible prediction that the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood would have a circadian rhythm to it if the proportion of methemoglobin was oscillating. And so using two different um, methods, one of them this uh, bloody blotting method, but also um, a, a real-time assay, non-invasive assay in 3D behaving humans, we were able to validate that yes, there is a, a rhythm in uh, methemoglobin contents um, in healthy humans. Karen Dumstry was a scientific editor at the Embo Journal for almost 20 years. Karen left the journal this year, having recently been appointed head of Embo's fellowship program, but she took the time to talk to us about John and Andrew's manuscript. I was the handling editor at Review Commons, and I just loved the process that, and the journey that the paper took, Yeah, because what you had at Review Commons was different what slightly different what's in the final version, yeah? And I just really was very excited to see how the process evolved. And so I was talking to my Lemberger, who is the, um, you know, really involved in this project, said, you know, I have this wonderful review comment story. <laughs> and then we contacted Tiago to say, yeah, and uh, so this is sort of how this all evolved, yeah? 
That's, that's uh, wonderful to hear. You see, I know it took quite a long time after we initially submitted to review comments, and um, partly that's because I've had some um, personal family issues. But generally, in uh, the circadian research field, everything takes forever. And so we're, we're, we're quite patient when it comes to uh, revising manuscripts. And we were very uh, appreciative that Review Commons also has quite a relaxed attitude towards um, getting the revision um, back. And I think in the end, it was nearly a, a year and a half. Um, but I think that the final manuscripts that then got transferred to Embo was, was much better. Mm. Um, we found by and large the, um, the peer review process very constructive. Not reviewer two, there's always a reviewer two. Reviewer yeah. two said, I see no merit in this investigation, but I thought that the other two reviewers were um, very positive, but gave us some um, very specific points to think about that we could go away and uh, do some additional experiments with which to demonstrate the physiological relevance, because obviously in the, the initial submission, we were kind of entirely speculating about the physiological relevance. That's interesting because, the, so the reviewer number two, Karen, you, you opted to drop out of the, the review process towards the end to, to just decline to, yes. to keep them involved in the process. Um, because in a way, reviewer one had sort of the same sentiment as reviewer two, but the tone <laughs> was slightly different. Yeah, So reviewer one was much more constructive, where reviewer two was, had sort of, in essence, similar concerns, but the tone was just much more negative and dismissive. And so I had the luxury that Review 1 had raised similar concerns and that I could use Review 1 in that sense. And it looks to me, at least looking at the, at the file, and, and it is a, a transparent review uh, file, so anyone can go and, and read the, the peer review and see what happened to the paper. It, it seems that a lot of the discussion, uh, the substantial discussion, centered on, on Figure 4 of the paper. John or Andrew, could you tell us a bit uh, what those concerns were and, and, and how you responded? I guess how we left it on the initial submission was a bit of a, a hypothesis. You know, well cited, plenty of reviews and some fundamental biochemistry, but it was still a hypothesis. And, and I guess the reviewers pushed us towards go and test that hypothesis and see what happens. And so in that year, year and a half, we were able to find the collaborators who could do that for us. And there were very specific experiments that reviewers had asked us to do, and ones that, you know, um, were not too too hard to do, and luckily gave very clear answers. And so you could almost look at figure four in chronological order, that panel A was what we originally had, panel B and C was the next experiment that we did, and then panel D and E was the final thing they asked for and, and about the final thing that we did. And it, and it all kind of came into place, yeah, quite, quite nicely. And I, I've got to say a, a big thank you to Edward Hayter and um, David Bechtold at the University of Manchester, who did the mouse experiments in uh, figure 4D and E, because um, we simply, as a fundamental cell biology lab, we simply aren't really in a position to do those um, rather time-consuming um, in vivo experiments in mouse with real-time telemetry. If you want to see how the sausage is made, nitrites and all, both Review Commons and Embo Press implement transparent peer review. In the transparent review files, you can read the reviewer's comments, the author's response, and the editorial decision. 
You might also want to have a look at the preprint, even if you have the final journal version on hand. The journal paper may lose interesting hypotheses, discussion points, or even data that was deemed too preliminary by the editors and reviewers. Preprints can sometimes be easier to read, especially for someone outside the work-specific field. A journal targeting a specialized readership can often insert more jargon or assume more background knowledge, generating a tighter, streamlined paper, but something can be lost along the way. I think that this is a, a general um, problem as, as fields become more and more specialized that actually we talk about open access, which is, you know, great in terms of you don't have to pay, there's no firewall. But another part of open access is, is this comprehensible to somebody outside your immediate discipline? And I think a lot of the time there is a massive barrier to um, a, a transmission of understanding between fields because we get forced during the review process to cage our observations in terms of jargon which is avoidable you know i think some of my colleagues might take issue with me but there are not very many fundamentally complicated ideas in biology um in physics chemistry absolutely but there is nothing really that a bright undergraduate student in the biological sciences should not be able to understand and i fear that in many papers in high and low level journals, the use of jargon massively increases the um, activation energy for uh, 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 somebody from outside the discipline to be able to understand what was done and what the reasonable interpretation is. I think in the past, I mean, the main reason for that was just space when, when you had to have a printed edition of a journal. But Karen, uh, from your yeah. point of view, what do you think? So I was going to ask John and Andrew, do you think this is at the journal level, the editor level, or the author level? Because in this case, I handled both the review comments one and I handled the EMBO journal submission, yeah? And I did note that the review comments, I was just looking at the files yesterday, that it was more extensive. But I don't think I at any point in the process guided you to make it more succinct. It's the product that I received at the EMBO journal was just different than what you had submitted to EMBO review comments. And so I'm sort of interested in to see, as an author, how you made the decision to make the f the f what you submitted to a journal uh, different in the style. Well, just going back to what John said about the artifactual observation, because that was one of the things that came up in the reviewer's comments, that there was probably our fault. You know, we didn't write that clearly enough. It was clear in our minds that it was hemoglobin, it was the point of lysis, it was a biological phenomenon that we were revealing. But it clearly wasn't clear um, to the readers. And so a, a lot of the changes, I would say, came from rereading the review comments submitted article in conjunction with the comments and then thinking, right, we've got a chance to, to tighten this up as well as make the changes and, and the extra data. But to really tighten this up, um, which obviously, you know, involves a lot, a lot of the time just cutting out some of the words and the jargon like like John was saying. Um, so at least from my perspective, yes, didn't feel any pressure to make it shorter, but definitely clearer. Mm. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, Reviewers 1 and 3 encouraged us very strongly to test the speculation that we made in the discussion. So, you know, both of them said, the discussion is too speculative. Um, and so obviously we went away and 
tested those predictions. And so then all of that stuff moves into the results section. And thus, we removed all of the speculation because we now had data to uh, support it. Ultimately, I think we did improve it after the comments. But one of the advantages of submitting to review comments in the first place was was simply just getting the idea out there, getting it onto bioarchive and, and getting active feedback without having to worry too much about formatting and things that you know, maybe detract from the scientific kind of iterative improvement process. So one of the things you mentioned as, as an interesting possibility here for, for the physiological impact of this mechanism is that it, it will be intertwined with circadian regulation of body temperature. Could you tell us a bit about that? Our hypothesis in the final paper, it was predictions previously, um, really looked at the, the link between methemoglobin and nitric oxide. And obviously that does a lot of things in physiology, but straight away to us coming from the circadian perspective, we think of things like the daily variation in body temperature. And so it was a very, very obvious link to make that a rhythm in something that would alter nitric oxide in the, the periphery would also impact on uh, vasodilation and therefore body temperature. And so we've got a few other observations that I've been working on, on body temperature and the importance of that as a synchronizing cue in, in cells as well as whole animals. So it's actually a, a little vignette, I suppose, into, to how we've viewed the paper. But, but obviously there are, there are a lot more, um, observations that spin off this methemoglobin angle, which, um, yeah, maybe we'll follow up in the future. By way of providing context, um, many different um, excellent labs have been looking at daily rhythms in body temperature for absolutely decades. And um, for reasons that were never entirely clear to me, the focus has been almost exclusively on thermogenesis. So um, if you're a mouse, that is, you know, your body temperature goes up at night. If you're a human, your body temperature goes up during the daytime. And that occurs for a, a, a number of reasons, partly um, increased locomotor activity. So, you know, you go to the gym, you work out, your body temperature goes up. Also feeding, also um, uh, brown adipose tissue thermogenesis. But all of the focus has been on heat generation. But of course, your core body temperature um, is simply the outcome of how much heat you're making versus how much heat you're losing. And it's been known for absolutely donkey's years that um, core body temperature, of course, goes down at night. And yet the idea that cooling is a, a circadian regulated process is just not something that has received anywhere near as much attention. But we know that there is increased peripheral vasodilation. And so you've got more blood flow going to your peripheral tissues, particularly your legs, your arms, your hands, your feet. And we know that that is the thing that allows core body temperature to decrease. And so given that methemoglobin has already been established as a vector of nitric oxide signaling, which complements um, uh, uh, tissue resident nitric oxide generation in the periphery, given that that had already been established, it just seemed like an obvious um, uh, and testable hypothesis to us that this rhythm in methemoglobin uh, content in the red blood cell would be competent to contribute 
to cooling during the rest phase. So that's during the day if you're a mouse. And of course, we can manipulate methemoglobin simply by putting a bit of uh, sodium nitrite into um, drinking water. The mice do not mind at all. And with the consequence that uh, it leads to a, a modest increase in um, methemoglobin content in their red blood cells, just like uh, if you or I um, had some, uh, uh, well, ate too much bacon, for example. And uh, the specific prediction that we had was that then this would lead to a daytime specific increased cooling in the mouse. And, and that's, what we, that's what we found. And so it is supportive of the idea that one of the functions of red blood cell intrinsic rhythms in uh, hemoglobin oxidation status one of the uh, uh, things that that appears to do is contribute to cooling during the, the rest phase. And this is the thing that helps humans, that helps mice get to sleep um, during the rest phase, to sustain sleep. And so one of the things that it might be interesting to go on to test is whether we can see evidence for differences in uh, in sleep quality or latency, for example. I'd be very curious to see the outcome of that as someone who sleeps very poorly. Just a, a note, not, not related to this, but I, I'm an immunologist by training. And for immunology, it's been a big problem with mice and body temperature because standard housing conditions are hypothermic and uh, the, the the response to things like uh, inflammatory, acute inflammatory signal in signals, uh, LPS and things, turn out to be very, very, uh, probably d diametrically opposed to what the natural physiological response would be in terms of the temperature range, just because we, we house mice at, at abnormal temperatures for them, at good temperatures for us. Well, the, the other major problem is that um, most experiments in mice are done at the wrong biological time of day, because for convenience reasons, the mice houses have the lights on during the daytime, but that's of course the equivalent of our night. Um, and so most uh, experiments in mice, if they are performed by people who aren't aware of the profound um, bidirectional interaction between circadian rhythms and the immune system, if the experiment is only performed during the daytime, it's modeling what you would do, um, what, what would happen in a human in the middle of a night. And of course, it is not as common that we encounter a challenge to the immune system in the middle of the night because we're asleep. This was Andrew Beale's first experience submitting a manuscript to Review Commons. But John O'Neill has used the preprint peer review platform before. We have had very positive experiences with Review Commons. I think that we've now used it four times. And the advantage is that firstly, you're not under any time pressure. And so you can, once you get the reviewer's comments back, you have the option to do a, a kind of modest revision and then a plan for how you will improve the manuscript before transferring to the journal. Or you can take your time to do an entire um, major revision before transferring to the, to the journal, which is what we've always done. And the fact that you can take time to get it right is just so incredibly liberating to us. Um, also, the, the rather constructive nature of the review um, interactions we've had with reviewers through uh, Review Commons has been good. And the um, seamless um, interlinking with BioArchive is really fantastic as well. So I, I do recommend it to everybody that I talk to. It's kind of surprising to me, though, that there are many of my colleagues that simply aren't aware of it yet. Um, I, I have been proselytizing. 
Um, Karen, you mentioned that you were the editor in, in at the Review Commons stage and at Embo Journal. Is that always what happens? It's not always the case. Um, you know, so Embo Press editors are involved in um, in the review process as handling editors for Review Commons. And basically, it is uh, assigned uh, based on subject categories, yeah? And so in this case, um, I was the handling editor for the review comments, although circadian rhythms is not my <laughs> core expertise, but um, I handle it at review comments. So, and then when it gets submitted to a journal, it then depends on who the handling editor and who is in-house at the moment, yeah? So... Most often, if I'm the handling editor, if I was the handling editor at Review Commons, I would also, when it comes to the Embo Journal, be the handling editor for the Embo Journal. Yeah, it just makes the just makes it more efficient. Yeah, because I know the paper, I know the referees, I selected the referees, and um, uh, but I wanted also to pick up on something that John mentioned about Review Commons because I was reflecting yesterday. I was reflecting if. Had the paper come straight to the Embo Journal without the physiology, but with the method, yeah? So the Embo Journal has a method section and technique. How would I have viewed this paper, yeah? And it would, I think the method is really neat and it, it would probably have been sent out for review. But with those referee comments, I would probably have said, I'm really sorry, but uh, we need some physiological relevance for us to consider it further. And I would all, we probably have rejected it, yeah? And once you're rejected, it's always an uphill battle <laughs> to get the paper back into the journal again, yeah? It's, you know, in all honesty, had you guys come to me and say, hey, we got the physiological relevance, I would have said, yes, please resubmit the paper. But it's all, always when you're rejected, to change that into something positive is can at times be an uphill battle. And in the case, we didn't have this in this case because the, the product that I received in the end fit exactly our expectations for what an Embo Journal paper should have, yeah? And so it, that made it very smooth, yeah? Oh, I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> so, I hope we get to work with you again, Karen. <laughs> yes, so I should say for all transparency, um, to be fully transparent, I am, uh, have shifted out of the Embo Journal and I have now become head of the fellowship program. For me personally, one of, one of the more interesting aspects of preprints that I, I don't think is exploited enough is that it, it does allow the question uh, um, to be asked empirically, do journals add something of value to to scientific research? And for example, looking at at this at this manuscript, the preprint was great, but the paper is is better, I think. And and I think we've we've gone through some aspects in in, in which that's the case. And as I've often discussed with with Bernd at at Embo Press, I don't think this is an answer that has a universal answer. Uh, a question that has a universal answer. I think there are some journals that are just taking money and doing nothing. But we should be able to look at what journals require of authors, uh, which of these requirements are actually improving the scientific literature in the, in the quality and the reliability, but also in, 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 the, in how readable things are and how, how enjoyable the experience is for the reader. And I think this is a great preprint to paper transition because we, we can see what happened and we can see that, um, that there were some things that were considered not required or not reasonable that were dropped along the way through through good editing and, and good interactions between the authors and, and the other reviewers. I mean, one thing I do want to mention 
for people who don't know is that there is reviewer cross-commenting also on the platform. So the, the, the editor and the authors are not alone in, in seeing, um, in, in trying to figure out what to do. There's also the aspect of the reviewers commenting on the quality of, of the other reviewers. So I think overall we get, we get a better paper. Peer review in general, people, people do moan about it, but it is the uh, least bad system that we have. And I've got to say, there is not a paper that I've published that has not been improved through the review process. I mean, it's often painful, but getting an external perspective is, is really just essential because, you know, the scientists that have written the paper, they've been thinking about it so much that they've lost perspective. It's really essential to get that external view of the work, how cohesive it is because you, you can just lose it um, once you've been working on I don't know some residue in a protein for the last three years. The only question that really matters is do the data support the conclusions? You know, that's the only thing that matters. And if the data don't support the conclusions, then what additional data would be required or how can you tone down the conclusions? And in all cases I think it's important in every bit of work that we review, we try and make it as easy as possible for the authors to understand what we've misunderstood or what we don't find sufficiently convincing and why. Um, uh, certainly we avoid or absolutely try to avoid any subjective opinions. We just stick to you stick to the data, basically. This is also reflected in your point-by-point -point response, yeah? Because I think you're doing actually quite, you had different views on the paper from referee one and referee two. I said, in the essence, they both said the same thing. It's just the tone was different, yeah? And, and you have been through enough review process that how to write a referee report, it also depends a little bit on the personality of the reviewer. It's lots is taken in together, yeah? And I think in your point-by-point -point response, you actually are staying to the science and not getting caught up in taking anything personal, or which I sometimes saw at the, uh, at the Embo Journal, that point-by-point -point response is good. Some authors took it very personal if somebody said, hey, I, it's a well-done paper, I just don't really think it's enough of an advance. Yeah? Which is a fair enough viewpoint to have. Yeah? And it's, it's a viewpoint and it's a judgment. Yeah? And I think how you respond to these these situations is, I think, is very important, uh, and not to take it personal. Yeah, and I think there you balance it really nicely. Yeah. Thank you. I always we'll, give people we'll pass that on to uh, our, yeah. our colleagues. <laughs> I always give people the advice when they get a, a difficult comment on a review, on a paper or a grant is to take a piece of like physical paper and a pen and write out longhand the response you really want to write and say what you need to say about people's ancestry or their mother or where they can go. And then uh, just throw that out. Don't write it on your computer. <laughs> Don't have anywhere you can copy paste by accident. Just write it on a yellow legal notepad. Say what you need to say as if you were screaming at a, a football a referee or something and then just burn it or shred it or feed it to your dog and, and write the, uh, the, the grown-up response that you need to write to get the paper out or to get, to get uh, whatever result you need. But also just to get back to Reviewer 2, I just want to emphasize what Reviewer 2 said was, I think factually, was relevant, was important. It is just the judgment of this Reviewer 2 was 
was a different, but the judgment is left to the editor who to decide what, where does the paper go? How much does the paper need to add to be published in your journal? Yeah. But reviewer two was, I think, spot on in the scientific assessment. Yeah. You might not disagree with all the comments that were raised, but it was not so far away from reviewer one. And, but it was just more in the judgment of where the importance of this paper. Yeah. So just to give some credit yeah. to reviewer two. No. Yeah. It's a, yeah. As, uh, as, as you asked, Karen, as, as what happened when I, when I, I saw I used to be an editor at the Journal of Experimental Medicine, and when similar situations arose, I mean, what you would try to do is distill the key points, and then to make sure that you were on, um, on good ground is to contact the academic uh, editorial board and say, look, uh, um, to get someone in the field uh, to say, look, I think uh, this, this actual request or this experiment or this, uh, or this question is valid, but I don't want to... I don't, I, from the tone, I don't think this is going to be a productive interaction downstream. So what should we ask of the authors uh, and to, to make sure that we address the scientific point, but don't get caught up in, a, in an unproductive discussion? Yeah, well, I, 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 I tend to agree. It, it does highlight the difference between reviewer one and reviewer two's approach, that reviewer two, there were a lot more opinions uh, than there was... Um, fact-based reasoning. It did not give us very much to work with in terms of why specifically do they think this? Whereas Review 1 listed what they thought were, you know, the, the, the strong points, listed the weak points, and in each case explained why they thought that, which, as I say, is, is, is much easier for us to work with in terms of improving the, uh, the manuscripts. I do want to end with, with one question for you, John, because I saw a, a snippet of an interview uh, online where you, you say that your scientific, uh, one of your heroes or idols is, is Peter Mitchell, and that you sort of envy the uh, let's go out to the shed and, and do an experiment approach that he did to, to come up with the, the chemio-osmotic uh, data, which is an incredible fundamental piece of, of biology. I'm curious if you were going out to your shed, what would you be doing out there in, in scientific uh, research terms? What would be doing out in the shed? I mean, the the the, the dream, the long-term dream um, of of the group is to try and reconstitute the mammalian cellular timing mechanism in solution. It's been done in cyanobacteria, so it is possible in principle. We know that changes in gene expression or protein abundance are not absolutely required. They're almost always present, but they're not absolutely required. And we know a handful of the enzymatic mechanisms that are relevant, but we probably don't know all of them. So if I had my shed, rather than trying to disprove other people's hypotheses, um, I would try and get enough data to propose a specific mechanistic basis for the timing mechanism, the circadian timing mechanism in mammalian cells. And Andrew, shed or no shed, what's next for you? Uh, I was thinking actually when John was speaking what I would do in a shed. And one of the things I really like about working in John's lab is the freedom to kind of explore ideas. Um, and so coming from my background, which is a bit more evolutionary biology, I think one of the things I really like to do is just look across mechanisms of uh, different animals, different cell types. And so maybe in my shed, it would be a bit more like a zoo. 
um, and I'd be able to, you know, just observe animals in natural environments, always with the, the kind of mechanistic question in the background, but just kind of trying to see what, what sort of things do these animals do that might highlight the, the avenues to the, the answers um, that we want to ask. So, yeah, a bit, bit more like a, a, bit more like a, a, a zoo or a, a, a fancy potting shed with lots of different species. Like Yokomoya's outdoor exactly. yeah. experiment, yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant. To learn more about John and Andrew's research and other projects in the O'Neill Lab, visit their page at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology site. Review Commons interfaces seamlessly with BioArchive and MedArchive. It also transfers refereed preprints directly to 23 partner journals, including the EMBO Journal. To explore refereed preprints or to submit a manuscript to Review Commons, visit reviewcommons.org. Thank you for listening to the EMBO Podcast. Thank you.